Well, we are going to continue working through our sermon series on the book of Daniel that I've titled Daniel Remaining Faithful in a Faithless Generation. These last two Sundays, I've been uh, focused on Daniel chapter 1. And what we have discovered about Daniel is that he found himself, he was in Jerusalem, and then there was this King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, came and besieged Jerusalem and took Daniel and his friends back to Babylon, where these men were to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel and his buddies found themselves way far away from home in a new land. They were given a new name. They were given new names that exalted the Babylonian gods. They were enrolled in this demonic uh, schooling, this curriculum that lasted for three years that was to train Daniel and his buddies to serve the king. And on top of this, we talked about that... Satan and his agents were trying to destroy Daniel's faith and his buddy's faith in the one true God of the Bible. Daniel was in some crazy circumstances, uh, crazier than what, Lord willing, we, will, uh, we won't even come close to experiencing what he had to experience. And although we probably won't, we do live in interesting times, don't we? This is something else that we've talked a little bit about. Natural disasters, mass shootings, the threat of nuclear war, the heroin epidemic, sex trafficking, abortion, racism, classism, divorce, poverty, it is all around us. Our world is unfortunately filled with these things. And so is idolatry. Just like in, Bab- in, in Babylon where there is so much idolatry going on, it's, it's rampant here in our own culture as well. You know, the selfish worship, the false gods of money and achievement and pleasure and entertainment and career are all false idols that we Americans seem to love to worship. And then we could go on with just so many other things that are, that are going on in our world, how violence is celebrated, how there's so much lies going on in, in the political realm of our country, and there's so much division there. And on top of all this, we too, like Daniel, are being hunted by the enemy. And this is something we talked about last Sunday. That Satan and his agents are looking to destroy us. They're looking to destroy our faith in the one true God of the Bible. Like Daniel, there are cosmic principalities, powers, and rulers that govern the kingdom of darkness that are seeking to isolate us from Christian community. They're seeking to fill our minds with lies, seeking to seduce us with power and recognition and comfort and pleasure. So the question then becomes, how on earth are we to navigate these difficult circumstances? How on earth are we to live in a world that is deeply broken, that's filled with so much evil and so much sadness and so much hurt and so much pain? How are we to remain faithful 
in a faithless generation? That is the question that is driving this sermon series. Well, guess what? We're going to turn back to Daniel chapter 1 again for the third Sunday in a row because there is still more gold to mine in this chapter, and I promise we will move on to Daniel chapter 2 next week, and I do not plan to spend three Sundays in each chapter of Daniel. I don't think so, unless God has different plans. But I want to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to wrestle with some things about how we can remain faithful in a faithless generation. Let's pray. Lord, I, I am glad that you have not left us to just have to figure everything out, that you haven't left us with zero direction, but your word that has been revealed to us through the scriptures and has been preserved for us throughout, you know, thousands of years, that it has uh, truth in it that can guide us in how we should live and how we can remain faithful in such a difficult context here in America. And so, Lord, as we consider Daniel chapter 1 again and we consider the actions of Daniel and his friends, Lord, we pray that you and your mighty wisdom and power would speak into our lives so that we can have lives that are shaped in such a way that we live victorious, uh, victoriously for you here in 2018, that we might be salt and light that we might be a part of your army that's storming the gates of hell, that's partnering with you to see people rescued and redeemed and renewed and transformed, and that's what we want. And so we know that the only answer is you. You are, you are the answer, and so help us uh, be your army for you. Um, what a tremendous thought that you have decided uh, to impact this world through us, your church, your bride. May we uh, live up to the calling through your power. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so Daniel 1. Um, I think I have to read it. Let me read it. Here we go. I'm going to read it quickly because I've read it now two Sundays in a row, but I just want you to know we're always so rooted in the scriptures, and I just, I'm going to read it. I'm going to go quickly. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank in three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. This is important. It's all important, and this is important for this message today. Now, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit. So deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter and flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. All right, there's the passage. So we're asking the question, how do we remain faithful in a, in a faithless generation? How do we remain faithful to God when we live in a, in a godless culture? And we have this ruthless enemy hunting us. This isn't a new question that we're asking. You need to know that God's people, followers of God, have been asking this question um, forever. How do you remain faithful? You know, Daniel was asking the question, I'm sure. Um, the prophets, you know, had to wrestle with this question. Obviously, the early church had to wrestle with this. The Jews in Jesus' day had to wrestle with this. In fact, you know, if we look at the Jews in Jesus' day and we look at how they responded and, and the approaches that they took to, the, to answering this question, I think it will help us reveal, it will help reveal how a lot of God's people have approached this question. So let's look at the Jews of Jesus' day, and let's look at how they approach faithfulness to God. And then we will see where Jesus landed and where Daniel landed. So first you need to know that the Jews in Jesus' day were in a difficult circumstance. They were in a difficult context. They were being ruled by the Romans who worshipped many gods. They lived immoral lifestyles. Um, they were brutal in how they handled the Jews and oppressed the Jews. And so it was a difficult context. And the Romans were also steeped in something called Hellenism. Hellenism, here's a definition for you, was this worldview that was based on the belief 
that human beings are the ultimate source of truth and authority in the universe. That's what Hellenism, the main thrust of Hellenism is. And so, how did these Jews in Jesus' day remain faithful to God in this pagan world that really viewed the world through this Hellenistic lens? Well, here were their approaches, and I want to look at each one of these approaches with you. Assimilation, withdrawal, separation, violence. Assimilation, withdrawal, separation, Violence. These were the different approaches that they took. So the first one, let's look at assimilation. So in Jesus' day, there was this group of Jews, a sect of Jews called the Sadducees. Now, we don't know a lot about the Sadducees, but we do know that they were the main party that basically ruled over the Jewish people. They held the most positions in like the, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and so they had a lot of power over the Jewish people. We also know that the Sadducees were involved in the temple priesthood. And so they had power over what took place in the temple. And we also know, we don't know to what extent, but they benefited financially from being in charge of the temple. Now, you also need to know that many Jews just despised the Sadducees because they were people that believed that they could be faithful to God by worshiping him at the temple and then living like a Hellenist every other day of the week, you know, the rest of the time. And so the Sadducees, they had no problem assimilating into the Hellenistic culture that was ripe there in, you know, pagan Rome. They had no problem with associating with other Hellenists, thinking and acting like Hellenists. They had no problem assimilating. For them, their belief was, you know what, we can come do our God thing um, at the temple, and then our faith and it just stays here, and then we can go out and we can live however really we feel like we want to the rest of the time. Faith isn't something to go public with. And they believed that God was okay with them leaving their faith at the temple. Now, some Christians today have this kind of approach to remaining faithful to God in a faithless generation. They believe that, hey, as long as we put our time in on Sunday mornings, as long as we do our duty by going to church on Sunday, then, you know, the rest of the week we can live however we want to live uh, throughout the rest of the week. We can eat like the rest of America. We can spend money the way that the rest of America spends their money. We can watch the shows that the rest of America watches. We can listen to the music that the rest of America listens to. We can joke like the rest of Americans. We can work like the rest of Americans. We can treat our spouses the way that Americans treat their spouses. We can spend our time like the rest of America. We can worship the gods of self and pleasure and entertainment and wealth and recognition and achievement and sports like the rest of America. We can do all of that. Our faith isn't meant to go public. That's how some Christians view their faith. It's meant to stay in church and God is okay with that. He understands. No need to talk about Jesus. 
No need to stand up for what is right. No need to stand out. No need to be different. No need to um, go against the grain. Assimilate into the culture. Another group of Jews in Jesus' day, so that was the Sadducees. Another group was the Essenes. And the Essenes were a different Jewish sect of a different Jewish group. And they chose withdrawal. That's how they approached the faithless generation. And so what they did is they believed that the Hellenistic culture of the Romans was so corrupt and the temple priesthood, the Sadducees, were so corrupt that, you know what, because, you know, the Sadducees have assimilated right into the Hellenistic culture. What we're going to do is we are going to leave this mess. We don't have any hope that it can change. And so we're just going to leave this mess and wait until God raises up a king to lead us into war against the Gentiles and these Hellenistic Jews, these people like these Sadducees who compromise, you know, on their faith, right? And so what they did is they withdrawed from society. They basically found some land in Montana and moved off the grid. But it was really the caves um, out in the desert. In fact, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible that we have come from this sect of Jews, they were found uh, in caves by the Dead Sea, and that's they're the Dead Sea Scrolls from this community, the, the scenes, right? And so they were the type of people that, hey, the world's a mess. Let's get as far away from it as we can. Let's don't talk with people that don't believe like us. That let's don't, don't think like them. That let's not behave like them. Let's not eat with them. They're evil. We don't want to be contaminated, so let's get out of here, right? Let's go to the desert in the caves where we're free to pray as much as we want to. We're free to read the scriptures. We're free just to do all of that. Now, some Christians take this approach to remaining faithful in a faithless generation. They take the approach of the Essenes and they withdraw, right? The world is something to be feared, so let's completely cut ourselves off from it, from any worldly influence, right? If we can't find land in Montana, let's find a whole bunch of acres in Tusla, and let's homeschool our kids, let's grow our own food, let's make our own choices, and, our, our, and make, our, make our own clothes. Let's have church at home with our family. Don't get a TV, don't listen to the radio, don't own a computer, and don't talk to anyone. Contact with the world is dangerous. Those people out there in the world are evil, and they are the problem, so we better stay away. Another group in Jesus' day named the Pharisees took a similar but different approach. They didn't choose to withdraw completely, but they did choose to separate from the culture. So separation. Unlike the Essenes, the Pharisees, they still lived in the Roman world. They still had jobs in the world. Um, they still had to at least see other people that weren't Pharisees. But they completely rejected Hellenistic culture. 
And so they were just determined to remain separated from the Hellenists so that they wouldn't be contaminated. In the Pharisees' mind, Greek culture, all of it was bad and it was off limits. And so don't, don't talk with them. Don't hang out with them. Don't, take out, uh, don't act like the Hellenists. Don't study like the Hellenists. Don't dress like them. S- be separate. Be separate from them. And so like the scenes, the Pharisees just viewed these Hellenists and Hellenistic Jews as the enemies, right? They're the problem with the world. If they were like us, there would be no problems. And so the Pharisees, they looked down their noses at people that weren't like them. They had disdain for the Hellenists, the rest of the Romans. For the Pharisees, if you were going to remain faithful to God in a faithless generation, you don't necessarily have to completely withdraw physically, but you better keep yourself separated. And that's why they really emphasize Jewish laws that mark them out as different and separate. Laws like, the, like circumcision and food laws and the Sabbath. Now some, some Christians take the, the Pharisee, the pharisaical approach of, of separation. It's okay to live in the world. It's okay to work in the world. But you better not consume anything from the culture of the world. Because if you do, you will surely become worldly too. Your, your best bet to remaining faithful to God is create a Christian bubble. That's your best bet. So, send your kids only to Christian schools, only to Christian colleges. Work for only Christian employers, only listen to Christian music, only listen to Christian radio, only read Christian books, only watch Christian movies and shows, only buy from Christian businesses, only hang out with other Christians. That's your only hope. And let's create a whole bunch of other rules, too, so that we don't, so what happens, you know, what we fear doesn't happen for sure. So, um, so let's never enjoy a glass of wine, because if we enjoy a glass of wine, well, then we might become drunks. And so instead, we just will write it off altogether, right? Don't let your kids dress up in nice costumes and go get trick-or-treating, you know, candy. Because if you let them do that, they'll become Satan worshipers. Another approach that people take towards remaining faithful in a faithless generation is one of violence. And that's another sect of Jewish people in Jesus' day. This is the approach that they took. Um, They were called the zealots. And so if you don't believe the way I believe, basically they were like, I'll kill you, is how they rolled. And there were some guys called the Sakari. They actually kept daggers in their, you know, dresses, whatever, you know, cloaks, whatever. And they would pull those things out, and in a crowd, they would kill compromising Jews, right, who were really ingrained in Hellenism. And they would slip away in the crowd. That's how they, they did it. Now, you know, it's this whole idea of if, if people don't, you know, believe the way we believe, then basically kill them. And, you know, Christians today do kind of adopt this view. They don't kill people. That, that's a good thing. They don't war with people physically, but they will with words. They'll make sure, modern-day zealots, they'll fight with their words. They'll make sure that they tear apart anybody who doesn't 
hold to their worldview. They will tear apart people on Facebook. Right? You've seen it. They will make fun of them. They will bash them. They'll discredit them, point out their blunders, their mistakes, get into arguments with them so that they can convince them how wrong and lost that they are. So these are the four general approaches to remaining faithful in a faithless generation that God's people um, have taken. So which one's the best one? Which one would you pick? Which one do you think Daniel picked? Which one do you think Jesus picked? The answer? None of them. None of them. And so I ask you, though, which approach are you most prone to taking? Because we're all susceptible to these approaches. And we all have a natural tendency to gravitate to one of these approaches. Which one is it for you? Is it assimilation? Does your life look so much like the typical, typical American that the people you work with don't even know you're a Christian? The people you hang out with don't even know about your faith. They have no idea. Is that you? Sadducee? Is it withdrawal? Do you have a tendency just to avoid the mess of the world? It's a lost cause. It's so messy, I'm not even going to get involved. I am going to go, and I'm going to be to myself. I'm going to retreat into isolation so I don't get contaminated too. Is it separation? Do you have a tendency to live in a Christian bubble? Do you live fearing that you and your kids are going to be contaminated with culture if you just do not, you know, not just obey God's rules, but put all these extra rules there too so you definitely won't cross God's rules? It's a Pharisee. Is it violence? Do you have a tendency to put down Make fun of and fight with people who don't hold to a Christian worldview, who don't think the way you think. And your job is to prove to them how wrong and lost and stupid they are. Now, here's something for us really, this is really important for us to understand. This is crucial, and this has been, I think, the problem with, with the church in a lot of ways over the last several decades. If we adopt any of these approaches, we will lose our influence on culture. We will lose it, and we have. If we choose assimilation, we won't be different enough culturally to impact the culture. If we choose to withdraw and separate, we won't be in the culture enough to impact it. Larry Osborne, an author, he says, without contact, there can be no impact. Without contact, there can be no impact. If we choose violence, people are just going to get angry with us, and their ears are going to shut, and their hearts are going to shut, and their palms are going to shut. So if assimilation, withdrawal, separation, and violence aren't options, what do we do? How did Daniel approach this question of remaining faithful? This is, this is it right here, in my opinion. We are to humbly and critically engage the culture of the world through loving service. Write that down. 
This is what Daniel did. This is what Jesus did and taught. This is what Paul did, and this is what we are to do. Let's just break this down. This won't take long, but let's break it down. First, Daniel was willing to engage the culture. In Daniel 1, we find Daniel and his friends engaging Babylonian culture deeply. In fact, they engage culture to a point that that I bet most of us are just uncomfortable with. Daniel, he was willing to allow himself to be called a Babylonian name that meant praise the God of Bel. How many of you would be willing to walk around with the name that said praise, meant praise Satan? Daniel was willing to do it. He was willing to tolerate it. How many of you would allow yourself to go into a curriculum that was focused on astrology and Babylonian religion and magic for a period of three years? Talk about immersing yourself in the culture. And not only did he go into it, but he graduated at the top of the class. Look at what, it, look at what Daniel one twenty says about Daniel. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, Daniel and his friends, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. He didn't just, in, he didn't just go to class like he was the, sat in front of the class, answered all the questions, aced all the tests. Yeah. He was Mary Senefton. That's who he was. That's a compliment, though. He was, he, I'm almost positive Daniel had, would have had to go to events that celebrated the Babylonian gods. I mean, he served in the royal palace, right? These are all things that Daniel was willing to endure even if he didn't like them. He was willing to engage culture in a deep way. To a great degree, he was willing to assimilate and he was willing to tolerate. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah told the exiles. This is what he told them to do in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7 says, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Engage the culture. Go live your life. Think of what Jesus was willing to do to engage us. That's what the incarnation is all about. He came right into the mess. He came right into the pagan Roman world, the Hellenistic culture. He lived and he ate and he walked and he talked and he engaged the culture. How about Apostle Paul? This was his mentality in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, some famous words. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all men, that I might be all, by all means, save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Engagement with culture is the only way that we're going to be able to intelligently and persuasively speak into it. Secondly, we can't just engage it. We have to engage it critically. We have to engage the culture critically. In a lot of ways, assimilation, withdrawal, separation, they're just easier. You just basically come up with your list of things and you just avoid all of it. You really don't have to. Once you've done the, the part of thinking what that list is, there's not much thinking after that. It's just basically everything's off limits. It's black and white. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. There's no uncertainty. We hate uncertainty as people, right? But if you're going to engage the culture the way Daniel did, it's going to take a lot of thought. You're going to have to think very critically. Although Daniel was, uh, was willing to assimilate into the Babylonian culture to a great degree, there were certain things that he decided, nope, I'm not crossing this line. I will remain separate from X, Y, and Z. Because he knew that he couldn't compromise on certain things. He would lose his saltiness. He would hide his light. There were certain aspects of Babylonian culture that were just downright sin. He couldn't just accept everything. There were certain things he had to outright reject. Daniel wasn't willing to eat the king's food. Now, if you read, like, the commentary, scholars will tell you, give you different opinions. But I think the opinion that makes the most sense to me is that Daniel knew that if he started to eat the king's delicacies, very quickly he would start depending on the king for a whole lot of other things and would push him to a place where he would not remain faithful to his God. He wanted to stay God-dependent, not King Nebuchadnezzar-dependent. Was it a sin to eat the king's food? No. But they say a, man's, a way to a man's heart is through his belly, right? Maybe Daniel knew that about himself. And here's what's crucial as we critically engage culture. We have to be honest with ourselves. As we engage the culture, are we becoming more like the culture or are we informing the culture and influencing the culture in a godly way? And if we're becoming more like the culture and the culture shaping us instead of us shaping the culture, typically those are red flags that we have assimilated too far. We haven't drawn the lines that we need to draw. And so we have to be honest with ourselves. There are some parts of, of any culture that we can accept. Because you know why? Because God's common grace that men and women are made in his image and are able to produce good things because God it gives them the grace to do some of that. And so in just about any culture, you can find things to accept and celebrate. But there are a whole bunch of things that can, we just can't partake in. And this takes thought. You know, Daniel wasn't willing, or at least his friends weren't willing to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. They knew the first commandment, you shall not have any gods before me. That was a line they weren't willing to cross. Daniel wouldn't stop praying, even though 
the king made it punishable by death. That's what got him in the lion's den is he wouldn't stop praying. That was a line that Daniel wasn't willing to cross. Was Daniel spineless? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Thirdly, Daniel engaged the culture humbly. We can't approach people arrogantly, can we? No one responds to that well. Arrogance and pride immediately put people on the defensive. It closes their ear. Humility involves treating others with gentleness and respect, no matter how different their worldview is from yours. It's realizing that, as Larry Osborne says, non-Christians, this is so important, non-Christians are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Victims need to be rescued, not wiped out. Daniel, it's amazing as you read the book how much he cared for his captors. He loved them. It was amazing. When King Nebuchadnezzar learned that God was going to punish him, Daniel said to the king, and this guy was wicked. I mean, more wicked than you guys. You probably never met a person this wicked. Daniel says this, my Lord made the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. That was Daniel's heart towards this evil, wicked, nasty king. When Daniel took a stand not to eat the king's food, he wasn't a jerk about it. I just read in the passage, he, please, could we just try the vegetables? And, but to the eunuch, he said, but whatever, you know, you decide. He wasn't, he wasn't a jerk about it. He respectfully made his request. Osborne, in talking about how gentleness and respect are often missing from culture engagement among Christians, writes this. Many excuse their words by pointing to Jesus' harsh rebukes of the Pharisees and other religious leaders of his day. But they miss the point. Jesus didn't rail on the sinners of his day. He pursued them. It was the religious hypocrites who were attempting to keep sinners at bay that he blasted. That's who Jesus had the the most harsh words for. If we're going to make an impact on the culture of our day, we got to humbly engage it in a critical way, but that's not enough. Probably the most important piece is that Daniel acted in loving service. Jeremiah, you know, encouraged the exiles in Babylon to serve the city, pray for the city, seek the peace of the city, the shalom of the city, which is way more and above and beyond just mere absence of conflict. It's when all the aspects of the city are working well and there's blessing and things are operating as they are supposed to. Jesus later came along and said, love your enemies Daniel had this in his heart. Daniel served the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar so well. He served him so well in love that that Daniel kept getting promoted in the kingdom. That's how well he served the king. He kept moving up the, the ladder of the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he kept having more power and influence in that kingdom. And this is so powerful. There's no guarantee that the people, that when we engage culture in a humble way through loving service, that people are going to become Christians. But it gives us the best chance. You know, I'm skipping ahead, King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil, wicked man, becomes a Christian. Because of how skillfully and thoughtfully Daniel engaged. 
where he was at. You see, if we're going to storm the gates of hell, if we're going to have an impact on this world, if we're going to be salt and light that, the God, that God calls this church to be, if we're going to be shining like stars in the midst of a per- perverse and crooked generation, if we're going to win people to Christ, we must refuse to assimilate. We must refuse to withdraw. We must refuse to separate. We must refuse resorting to violence. And instead, we must choose to humbly and critically engage culture through loving service. May this be abundant life, Christian fellowship. One last thing before I pray so I don't get emails this week. There's nothing wrong with homeschooling. (laughs) Say that. So if you're getting ready to send me that email, Dave and I just had this conversation. We had lunch. And there's no one-size-fits-all for every family. And that's part of the critical engagement, right? Is this best for my kid? Is it being at home? Is it being home or in public schools or it's a Christian school? So I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> I could say a lot of other things, too, probably about what I said, too. But I don't even remember what I said now. So <laughs> You probably don't either. I hope you do. Let's pray. Lord, we need your supernatural wisdom. Boy, the Christian life in a lot of ways would just be so much easier if there was just this list and we just followed the list and we didn't really have to think and we just, you know, but it's not. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, that you would put us, we got to think through these things in Christian community. That we would be thinking through these things with brothers and sisters in Christ so that we would know how to be salt and light in the world, that we would know when to assimilate and we would know when to separate, that we would know when, what things that we can do and what things we can't, and, Lord, that we would be gracious with everybody as they discern that. Because, you know, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, there, there are certain things that may be okay for another, another Christian, but it isn't okay for this other Christian because of their conscience and so we, we, we just pray, Lord, that we would be this body of believers that has your wisdom so that we can be uh, your, your powerful body in this world, that we would know how to interact with it in ways that would bring men and women and children to yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.